4. And the year 50 shall occupy the office of Chief Magistrate of these United States. Samuel was stern, serious and deeply in earnest. He seldom smiled and never laughed. He was uncompromisingly religious, conscientious and morally unbending. In his life there was no soft sentiment. The fact that he ran a brewery can be excused when we remember that the best spirit of the times saw nothing inconsistent in the occupation, and further than this we might explain in extenuation that he gave the business indifferent attention, and the quality of his brew was said to be very bad. In religion, he swerved not nor wavered. He was a Calvinist and clung to the five points with a tenacity at times seemingly quite unnecessary. When in that first Congress, Samuel Adams publicly consented to the opening of the meeting with religious service conducted by the Reverend Mr. Dutch, an Episcopal clergyman. He gave a violent wrench to his conscience and an awful shock to his friends, but Mr. Dutch met the issue in the true spirit, and leaving his detested, pulpery robe and prayer book at home uttered in extemporaneous invocation, without a trace of entombing, that pleased the Puritans and caused one of them to remark, He is surely coming over to the Lord's side. But in politics, Samuel Adams was a liberal of the liberals. In statecraft, the heresy of change had no terrors for him. And with Hamlet, he might have said, Oh, reform it altogether. The limitations set in every character seem to prevent a man from being generous in more than one direction. The bigot in religion is often a liberal in politics, and vice versa. For instance, physicians are almost invariably liberal in religious matters but are prone to call a man, Mr., who does not belong to their school, while orthodox clergymen, I have noticed, usually employ homeopathist, in that most valuable and interesting work, The Diary of John Adams, the author refers repeatedly to Samuel Adams as, Adams, this simple way of using the word, Adams, shows a world of appreciation for the man who blazed the path that others of this illustrious name might follow, and so with the high precedent in mind, I too, will drop prefix and call my subject simply, Adams, on the authority of King George. General Gage made an offer of pardon to all save two who had figured in the Boston Uprising. The two men thus honored were John Hancock whose signature the king could read without spectacles, and the other was, one, S. Adams. Adams, however, was the real offender, and the plea might have been made for John Hancock that, if it had not been for accident and Adams, Hancock would probably have remained loyal to the mother country. Hancock was aristocratic, cultured and complacent. He was the richest man in New England. His personal interests were on the side of peace and the established order. But circumstances and the combined tact and zeal of Adams threw him off his guard. And in a moment of dalliance the seeds of sedition found lodgment in his brain. And the more he thought about it, the nearer he came to the conclusion that Adams was right. But let the fact further be stated, if truth demands, that both John Hancock and Samuel Adams, the first men who clearly and boldly expressed the idea of American independence, were moved in the beginning by personal grievances, a single motion made before the British Parliament by we know not whom, and put to vote by the Speaker, bankrupted the father of Samuel Adams and robbed the youth of his patrimony. The boy was then seventeen, old enough to know that from plenty his father was reduced to penury, and this because England, three thousand miles away, had interfered with the business arrangements of the colony, and made in lawful a private banking scheme. Then did the boy ask the question, what moral right has England to govern us? Anyway, from thinking it over he began to formulate reasons. He discussed the subject at odd times and thought of it continually. 
and, in 1743, when he prepared his graduation thesis at Harvard College he chose for his subject, the doctrine of the lawfulness of resistance to the Supreme Magistrate if the Commonwealth cannot otherwise be preserved, when Massachusetts admitted that she was under subjection to the King, yet argued for the right to nullify the acts of the English Parliament, she took exactly the same ground that South Carolina did a hundred years later. The logic of Samuel Adams and of Robert Hayne was one and the same, yet we are glad that Adams carried his point, and we rejoice exceedingly that Hayne failed. So curious are these things we call, reasons. The royalists who heard of this youth with a logical mind denounced him without stint. A few newspapers upheld him and spoke of the right of free speech and all that, reprinting the thesis in full. And in the controversy that followed, young Adams was always a prominent figure. He was not an orator in the popular sense, but he held the pen of a ready writer, and through the Boston papers kept up a constant fusillade. The tricks of journalism are no new thing belonging to the fag end of this century. Young Adams wrote letters over the nom de plume of pro bono publico, and then replied to them over the signature of Rex Americus. He did not adopt as his motto, Let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, for he wrote with both hands and each hand was in the secret. During the years that followed his graduation from college he was a businessman and a poor one. For a man who looks after public affairs much cannot attend to his own. But he managed to make shift, and when too closely pressed by creditors, a loan from Hancock, or John Adams, Hancock's attorney, relieved the pressure. In fact, when he went to Philadelphia on that very important errand, he rode a horse borrowed from John Adams, and his Sunday coat was the gift of a thoughtful friend. In 1763, it became known that the British government had on foot a scheme to demand a tribute from the colonies, on invitation of a committee, possibly appointed by Adams. Adams was requested to draw up instructions to the representatives in the colonial legislature. Adams did so and the document is now in the archives of the old state house at Boston, in the plain and elegant penmanship that is so easily recognized. This document calls itself the first public denial of the right of the British Parliament to tax the colonies without their consent, and the first public suggestion of a union on the part of the colonies to protect themselves against British aggression. The style of the paper is lucid, firm and logical, it combines in itself the suggestion of all there was to be said or could be said on the matter. Adams saw all over and around his topic no unpleasant surprise could be sprung on him twenty-five years had he studied this one theme. He had made himself familiar with the political history of every nation so far as such history could be gathered, he was past master of his subject. However, when he was forty years of age his followers were few and mostly men of small influence. The Cockers Club was the home of the sedition, and many of the members were day laborers. But the idea of independence gradually grew, and, in 1765, Adams was elected a member of the Massachusetts Colonial Legislature. In honor of his writing ability, he was chosen clerk of the assembly, for in all public gatherings orators are chosen as presidents and newspapermen for secretaries, thus are honors distributed, and thus, too, does the public show which talent it values most. On November 2, 1772, on motion of Adams, a committee of several hundred citizens was appointed to state the rights of the colonies and to communicate and publish them to the world as the sense of the town with the infringements and violations thereof that have been or may be made from time to time, also requesting from each town a free communication of their sentiments on this subject, 
This was the Committee of Correspondence from which grew the Union of the Colonies and the Congress of the United States. It is a pretty well-attested fact that the first suggestion of the Philadelphia Congress came from Samuel Adams, and the chief work of bringing it about was also his. It was well known to the British government who the chief agitator was, and when General Gage arrived in Boston in May, 1774, his first work was an attempt to buy off Samuel Adams. With Adams out of the way, England might have adopted a policy of conciliation and kept America for her very own yes, to the point of moving the home government here and saving this snug little island as a colony, for both in wealth and in population America has now far surpassed England. But Adams was not for sale. His reply to Gage sounds like a scrap from Cromwell. I trust I have long since made my peace with the King of Kings. No personal consideration shall induce me to abandon the righteous cause of my country. Gage having refused to recognize the 13 councillors appointed by the people, the General Court of Massachusetts, in secret session, appointed five delegates to attend the Congress of Colonies at Philadelphia. Of course Samuel Adams was one of these delegates, and to John Adams, another delegate, are we indebted for a minute description of that most momentous meeting. A room in the State House had been offered the delegates, but with commendable modesty they accepted the author of the Carpenter's Company to use their hall, and so there they convened on the 5th day of September, 1774, having met by appointment, and walked over from the city tavern in a body. Forty-four men were to present not a large gathering, but they had come hundreds of miles, and several of them had been months on the journey. They were a sturdy lot, and madam, I think it would have been worthwhile to have looked in upon them. There were several coonskin caps in evidence, also lace and frills and velvet brought from England but plainness to severity was the rule. Few of these men had ever been away from their own colonies before. Few had ever met any members of the Congress save their own colleagues. They represented civilizations of very different degrees. Each stood a bit in awe of all the rest. Several of the colonies had been in conflict with the others, needing new men in those days, when even the stagecoach was a passing show worth going miles to see, was an event. There was awkwardness and nervousness on the swarthy faces, fur mouths twitched, and big, bony hands sought for places of concealment. The meeting had been called for September 1st but was postponed for five days awaiting the arrival of belated delegates who had been detained by floods. Even then, delegates from North Carolina had not arrived, and Georgia not having thought it worthwhile to send any, eleven colonies only were represented. Each delegation naturally kept together, as men will who have a fighting history and a pioneer ancestry. It was a serious, solemn business, and these men were not given to levity in any event, when they were seated. There was a moment of silence so tense it could be heard. Every chance movement of a foot on the uncarpeted floor sent an echo through the room. The stillness was first broken by Mr. Lynch, of South Carolina, who arose and in a low, clear voice said, There is a gentleman present who has presided with great dignity over a very respectable body and greatly to the advantage of America. Gentlemen, I move that the Honorable Peyton Randolph, one of the delegates from Virginia, be appointed to preside over this meeting. I doubt not it will be unanimous. It was so, and a large man in powdered wig and scarlet coat arose, and, carrying his gold-headed cane before him like a mace, walked to the platform without apology. The New Englanders in homespun looked at one another with trepidation on their features. The red coat was not assuring, but they kept their peace and breathed hard. 
praying that the enemy had not captured the convention through strategy. Mr. Randolph's first suggestion was not revolutionary, it was that a secretary be appointed. Again Mr. Lynch arose and named Charles Thompson, a gentleman of family, fortune and character. This testimonial of family and fortune was not assuring to the plain Massachusetts men, but they said nothing and awaited developments. All were cautious as woodsmen, and the motion that the council be held behind closed doors was adopted. Every member then held up his right hand and made a solemn promise to divulge no part of the transactions, and Galloway, of Pennsylvania, promised with the rest, and straightway each night informed the enemy of every move. Little was done that first day but get acquainted by talking very cautiously and very politely. The next day a notable member had arrived, and in a front seat sat Richard Henry Lee, a man you would turn and look at in any company, slender and dark, with a brilliant eye and a profile and only one man in ten thousand has a profile Lee was a gracious presence. His voice was gentle and flexible and luring, and there was a dignity and poise in his manner that made him easily the foremost orator of his time. Near him sat William Livingston, of New Jersey, and John Jay, his son-in-law, the youngest man in the Congress, with a nose that denoted character, and all his fame in the future. The Pennsylvanians were all together, grouped on one side. Duane, of New York, sat near them, shy and squint-eyed, very sensible and very artful, wrote John Adams that night in his diary. Then over there sat Christopher Gadsden, of South Carolina who had preached independence for full ten years before this, and who, when he heard that the British soldiers had taken Boston, proposed to raise a troop at once and fight redcoats wherever found, but the British will burn our seaport towns if we antagonize them, some timid soul explained, our towns are built of brick and wood, if they are burned we can rebuild them, but liberty once gone is gone forever, he retorted, and the saying sounds well, even if it will not stand analysis. That near the wall was a man who, when the assembly stood at morning prayers, showed a half-head above his neighbors. His face was broad, and he, too, had a profile. His mouth was tightly closed, and during the first fourteen days of that Congress he never opened it to utter a word, and after his long quiet he broke the silence by saying, Mr. President, I second the motion. Once, in a passionate speech, Lynch turned to him and pointing his finger said, there is a man who has not spoken here, but in the Virginia Assembly he made the most eloquent speech I ever heard. He said, I will raise a thousand men, and our men subsist them at my expense and march them to the relief of Boston. And then did the tall man, whose name was George Washington, blush like a schoolgirl. But in all that company the men most noticed were the five members from Massachusetts. They were Bowden, Samuel Adams, John Adams, Gushing and Robert Treat Payne. Massachusetts had thus far taken the lead in the struggle with England. A British army was encamped upon her soil. Her chief city besieged the port closed. Her sufferings had called this Congress into being, and to her delegates the members had come to listen. All recognized Samuel Adams as the chief man of the convention. His hand wrote the invitations and earnest requests to come. Galloway, writing to his friends, the enemy, said, Samuel Adams eats little, drinks little sleeps little and thinks much. He is most decisive and indefatigable in the pursuit of his object. He is the man who, by his superior application, manages at once the faction in Philadelphia and the factions of New England. Yet Samuel Adams talked little at the convention. He allowed John Adams to state the case, but sat next to him supplying memoranda, 
occasionally arising to make remarks or explanations in a purely conversational tone, but so earnest and impressive was his manner, so ably did he answer every argument and reply to every objection, that he thoroughly convinced a tall, angular, homely man by the name of Patrick Henry of the righteousness of his cause. Patrick Henry was pretty thoroughly convinced before, but the recital of Boston's case fired the Virginian, and he made the first and only real speech of the Congress. In burning words he pictured all the colonies had suffered and endured, and by his matchless eloquence told in prophetic words of the glories yet to be. In his speech he paid just tribute to the genius of Samuel Adams, declaring that the good that was to come from this first of an unending succession of Congresses was owing to the work of Adams. And in after years Adams repaid the compliment by saying that if it had not been for the cementing power of Patrick Henry's eloquence, that first Congress probably would have ended in a feudal wrangle. The South regarded, in great degree, the fight in Boston as Massachusetts' own, to make the entire thirteen colonies adopt the quarrel and back the colonial army in the vicinity of Boston was the only way to make the issue a success and to unite the factions by choosing for a leader of a Virginian aristocrat was a crowning stroke of diplomacy. John Hancock had succeeded Randolph as president of the Second Congress, and Virginia was inclined to be lukewarm. When John Adams in an impassioned speech nominated Colonel George Washington as commander-in-chief of the Continental Army, the nomination was seconded very quietly by Samuel Adams. It was a vote, and the South was committed to the cause of backing up Washington, and Incidentally, New England, the entire plan was probably the work of Samuel Adams, yet he gave the credit to John, while the credit of stoutly opposing it goes to John Hancock, who, being presiding officer, worked at a disadvantage, but Adams had a way of reducing opposition to the minimum, he kept out of sight and furthered his ends by pushing this man or that to the front at the right time to make the plea, he was a master in that fine art of managing men and never letting them know they are managed. By keeping behind the heiress, he accomplished purposes that a leader never can who allows his personality to be in continual evidence, for personality repels as well as attracts, and the man too much before the public is sure to be undone eventually. Adams knew that the power of Pericles lay largely in the fact that he was never seen upon but a single street of Athens, and that but once a year, the complete writings of Adams have recently been collected and published. One marvels that such valuable material has not before been printed and given to the public, for the literary style and perspicuity shown are most inspiring, and the value of the data cannot be gainsaid. No one ever accused Adams of being a muddy thinker, you grant his premises and you are bound to accept his conclusions. He leaves no loopholes for escape. The following words, used by Chatham, refer to documents in which Adams took a prominent part in preparing, when your lordships look at the papers transmitted us from America, when you consider their decency, firmness and wisdom, you cannot but respect their cause and wish to make it your own, for myself, I must avow that, in all my reading and I have read Thucydides and have studied and admired the master statesmen of the world for solidity of reason, force of sagacity, and wisdom of conclusion under a complication of difficult circumstances. No body of men can stand in preference to the General Congress of Philadelphia. The histories of Greece and Rome give us nothing like it, and all attempts to impress servitude on such a mighty continental people must be in vain. In the life of Adams there was no soft sentiment nor romantic vagaries. He is a Puritan in all the word implies, and the unbending fanatic of independence, wrote Gage, and the description fits.
he was twice married. Our knowledge of his first wife is very slight, but his second wife, Elizabeth Wells, daughter of an English merchant, was a capable woman of brave good sense. She adopted her husband's political views and with true womanly devotion let her old kinsman slide, and during the dark hours of the war bore deprivation without repining. Adam's home life was simple to the verge of hardship. All through life he was on the ragged edge financially, and in his latter years he was for the first time relieved from pressing obligations by an afflicting event the death of his only son, who was a surgeon in Washington's army. The money paid to the son by the government for his services gave the father the only financial competency he ever knew. Two daughters survived him, but with him died the name. John Adams survived Samuel for 23 years. He lived to see the great American experiment, as Mr. Ruskin has been pleased to call our country, on a firm basis, constantly growing stronger and stronger. He lived to realize that the sanguine prophecies made by Samuel were working themselves out in very truth. The grave of Samuel Adams is viewed by more people than that of any other American patriot. In the old granary burying ground, in the very center of Boston, on Tremont Street there where travel congests, and two living streams meet all day long you look through the iron fence, so slender that it scarce impedes the view, and not twenty feet from the curb is a simple metal disc set on an iron rod driven into the ground and on it this inscription, this marks the grave of Samuel Adams. For many years the grave was unmarked and the disc that now denotes it was only recently placed in position by the sons of the American Revolution. But the place of Samuel Adams on the pages of history is secure. Upon the times in which he lived he exercised a profound influence, and he who influences the times in which he lives has influenced all the times that come after, he has left his impress on eternity. John Hancock Boston, September 30th, 1765 Gent. Since my last I have received your favor by Capt. Hugh who is arrived here with the most disagreeable commodity say stamps that were imported into this country and what if carried into execution will entirely stagnate trade here, for it is universally determined here never to submit to it and the principal merchants here will by no means carry on business under a stamp. We are in the utmost confusion here and shall be more so after the 1st of November and nothing but the repeal of the act will ripen. The consequence of its taking place here will be bad, and attended with many troubles, and I believe may say more fatal to you than us. I dread the event. Extract from Hancock's letter book long years ago when society was young. Learning was centered in one man in each community, and that man was the priest. It was the priest who was sent for in every emergency of life. He taught the young, prescribed for the sick, advised those who were in trouble and when human help was vain and man had done his all, this priest knelt at the bedside of the dying and invoked a power with whom it was believed he had influence. The so-called learned professions are only another example of the division of labor. We usually say there are three learned professions, theology, medicine and law, as to which is the greatest is a much mooted question and has caused too many family feuds for me to attempt to decide it, and so I evade the issue and say there is a fourth profession that is only allowed to be called so by grace, but which in my mind is greater than them all the profession of teacher. I can conceive of a condition of society so high and excellent that it has no use for either a doctor, lawyer or preacher, but the teacher would still be needed. Ignorance and sin supply the three learned professions, their excuse for being, but the teacher's work is to develop the germ of wisdom that is in every soul, and now each of these professions has divided up, like monads, into many heads, 
in medicine, we have as many specialists as there are organs of the body. The lawyer who advises you in a copyright or patent cause knows nothing about admiralty, and as they tell us a man who pleads his own case has a fool for a client, so does the insurance lawyer who is retained to foreclose a mortgage. In all prosperous city churches, the preacher who attracts the crowd in the morning allows a apprentice to preach to the young folks in the evening, he does not make pastoral calls, and the curate who reads the service at funerals is never called upon to perform a marriage ceremony except in a case of charity. Likewise the teacher's profession has its specialists, the man who teaches Greek well cannot write good English, the man who teaches composition is baffled and perplexed by long division, and the teacher who delights in trigonometry poo-poo's a kindergartner. Just where this evolutionary dividing and subdividing of social cells will land the race no man can say, but that a specialist is a dangerous man, is sure. He is a soul with which wise men never monkey. A surgeon who has operated for appendicitis five times successfully is above all to be avoided. I once knew a man with lung trouble who inadvertently strayed into an oculist's and was looked over and sent away with an order on an optician. And should you through error stray into the office of a nose and throat specialist, and ask him to treat you for varicose veins, he would probably do so by nasal douche. Even now a specialist in theology will lead us, if he can. A merry, ignis fatus, chase and land us in a morass. The only thing that saved the priest in days agone was the fact that he had so many duties to perform that he exercised all his mental muscles, and thus attained a degree of all-roundness which is not possible to the specialist. Even then there were not lacking men who found time to devote to specialties, Bishop George's Ambrosius, for instance, who in the 15th century produced a learned work proving that women have no souls and a like book was written at Nashville, Tennessee, in 1859, by the Reverend Hubert Parsons of the Methodist Episcopal Church South, showing that Negroes were in a like predicament. But a more notable instance of the danger of a specialty is the Reverend Cotton Mather, who investigated the subject of witchcraft and issued a modest brochure incorporating his views on the subject. He succeeded in convincing at least one man of its verity, and that man was himself and thus immortality was given to the town of Salem, which, otherwise, would have no claim on us for remembrance, save that Hawthorne was once a clerk in its custom house. A very slight study of colonial history will show any student that, for two centuries, the ministers in New England occupied very much the same position in society that the priest did during the Middle Ages, as the monks kept learning from dying off the face of the earth. So did the ministers of the New World preserve culture from passing into forgetfulness. Very seldom, indeed, were there books to be found in a community except at the ministers, and during the 17th century, and well into the 18th, he combined in himself the offices of doctor, lawyer, preacher and teacher. Mr. Lowell has said, I cannot remember when there was not one or more students in my father's household, and others still who came at regular intervals to recite and this was the usual custom. It was the minister who fitted boys for college, and no youth was ever sent away to school until he had been drilled by the local clergyman. And it must further be noted that genealogical tables show that very nearly all of the eminent men of New England were sons of ministers, or of an ancestry where ministers' names are seen at frequent intervals. As an intellectual and moral force, the minister has now but a rudiment of the power he once exercised. The tendency to specialize all art and all knowledge has to a degree shorn him of his strength, and to such an extent is this true, 
that within forty years it has passed into a common proverb that the sons of clergymen are rascals, whereas in colonial days the highest recommendation a youth could carry was that he was the son of a minister. The Reverend John Hancock, grandfather of John Hancock the Patriot, was for more than half a century the minister of Lexington, Massachusetts, I say, the minister, because there was only one, the keen competition of sect that establishes half a dozen preachers in a small community is a very modern innovation. John Hancock, Bishop of Lexington, was a man of pronounced personality, as is plainly seen in his portrait in the Boston Museum of Fine Arts. They say he ruled the town with a rod of iron, and when the young men, who adorned the front steps of the meeting house during service, grew disorderly, he stopped in his prayer and going outside soundly cuffed the ears of the first delinquent he could lay hands upon. In his clay there was a dash of facetiousness that saved him from excess. Supplying a useful check to his zeal for zeal incurred is very bad. He was a wise and beneficent dictator, and government under such a one cannot be improved upon. His manner was gracious, frank and open, and such was the specific gravity of his nature that his words carried weight, and his wish was sufficient. The house where this fine old autocrat lived and reigned is standing in Lexington now. When you walk out through Cambridge and Arlington on your way to Concord, following the road the British took on their way out to Concord, you will pass by it. It is a good place to stop and rest. You will know the place by the tablet in front, on which is the legend, Here John Hancock and Samuel Adams were sleeping on the night of the 18th of April, 1775, when aroused by Paul Revere. The Reverend Jonas Clark owned the house after the Reverend John Hancock, and the ministries of those two men, and their occupancy of the house, cover 100 years and 5 years more. Here the 13 children of Jonas Clark were born, and all lived to be old men and women. When you call there I hope you will be treated with the same gentle courtesy that I met. If you delay not your visit too long, you will see a fine, motherly woman, with white, sausage curls, and a high back comb wearing a check dress and felt slippers, and she will tell you that she is over 80, and that when her mother was a little girl she once sat on Governor Hancock's knee and he showed her the works in his watch, and then as you go away you will think again of what the old lady has just told you, and as you look back for a parting glance at the house, standing firm and solemn in its rusty gray dignity, you will doff your hat to it, and mayhap murderer, the days of man on earth they are but as a passing shadow, here John Hancock and Samuel Adams were sleeping when aroused by Paul Revere, merchant prince and